Well, I have some bad news tonight. There is no PowerPoint to go along with my lesson. Actually, there is a PowerPoint to go along with my lesson, but it's on my computer at home. I emailed it to myself in order to upload it here for tonight, and I got in here to do it and realized that I had emailed myself my Word document of my sermon, which, of course, has the same title, just has a different ending. I'd emailed the Word document and not the PowerPoint, so you're going to have to just actually listen to me tonight and not have anything up there to look at. I know it's hard, but you can look at me. <laughs> we had to do that for decades, so I think we can do it for, for just one service, but that also means that if you know, you normally just look at the screen and zone out. I'm going to know you're doing that tonight. You don't have any excuse to be looking up there. We're talking tonight about justification. And it might surprise you to know that the greatest debate that I am aware of that's currently going on in, in conservative uh, theological circles revolves around the word justification and what it means. Now, these are the sorts of things that we're not usually privy to because if these sort of debates go on, then they typically happen in academic journals that basically no one reads. But this is something that's actually made its way onto the popular level. You could go to Barnes & Noble or any other big bookstore like that right now and probably find books on both sides of this subject that have been written, probably even by the two ringleaders of these particular views, the two main figures involved. One is John Piper, the other is N.T. Wright. Some of you who do a lot of uh, reading about religious matters might even be familiar with one or both of those names. John Piper was for three decades a preacher of a Baptist church in Minnesota. Uh, he continues to be the chancellor of a seminary up there, and he's the leader of a, a website, Desiring God. Uh, some of you may be familiar with that site. There's actually a, a, quite a bit of good material on it. But Piper's views are strongly Calvinistic. And so his view of justification comes straight out of the Protestant Reformation. Sin has alienated humanity from God. And because of that, we justly deserve God's wrath. We deserve to have it vented, poured out upon us. We deserve condemnation because of our sin. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. He was raised from the dead, and his perfect righteousness, he lived a, a perfect life, and though we're sinful, his perfect righteousness can be imputed to us by faith. We can be clothed in his righteousness. Our sins are forgiven. God's wrath is satisfied because he poured it out on Jesus on the cross. So this, for Piper, is justification. Christ is the, the basis of it. Faith is the means of it being declared right with God. N.T. Wright, on the other hand, is a retired bishop in the Church of England. Uh, he's also an academic who's held a number of posts, and he is a prolific writer. Uh, he writes books, powerful, weighty books, big, thick books. Somehow, uh, 
faster than you can ever possibly read them. I don't know how he even does that because he comes out with at least one new one every year and you can't even read it before he's written an entire other one. Wright is always careful to ground his works in the context of the whole big narrative of Scripture. And that's the same thing that he does when he frames justification. God created a world that was good, and he placed humanity within it as his image bearers in order to go out and reflect him and to accomplish his purpose. But sin thwarted that purpose. And so God called Abraham and established a covenant with him and with his descendants to to set in motion his plan to rescue humanity with the ultimate goal that we could be restored to that image and that we could go out and carry out his purpose. And so the good news of the gospel is that God himself has come down in the form of Jesus. He fulfilled that covenant with Abraham as Israel's Messiah. And in his resurrection, he's been enthroned as the Lord of the whole world. And now he calls everyone into a covenant relationship with him through his grace. We're invited to accept that lordship of Jesus, to become his subjects ourselves, and to enter into that relationship with God to carry out his purpose. So for right, justification is God's declaration of who is in the covenant, that worldwide family of Abraham that now comes into a relationship with God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, there are some obvious points of agreement in those two. It's all about Jesus. We come into that relationship there through, through faith. But the big disagreement is over what actually justification is. Does it mean that Christ's righteousness belongs to us, that we're not righteous ourselves, but we've received Christ's righteousness and so God declares us to be right? Or is it a declaration about who is a part of God's people? Now, I think the way Wright talks about it fits the big picture of the biblical story better. In fact, if you notice the way that I described his talk about the gospel sounds a lot like what we said the gospel is when we had a lesson on this a few months ago. But this isn't about which one of these two men is right or wrong. This isn't even about you remembering who these guys are. If you never go read anything by either one of these guys, that's okay. The, the point I want us to realize, this has all been a word study. We've been studying words in detail for almost a year now. And the point I'm making with this is that words matter. Studying words matters. Defining what these important terms means matters. And it's not just academic because this has real implications. And for justification, it has implications for who God is, what his nature is, how we relate to him. If you think about these two views, and these are some of the criticisms of them on either side, Piper's view, for instance, that we're not righteous and justification is all about God declaring us righteous on the basis of Jesus' righteousness that's given to us. Piper's view, if it's taken to its logical conclusion, causes a lot of people to say that the way that you live doesn't matter because 
we're not saved on account of anything that we do. And in fact, it is basically what Paul combats when he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Well, you can abuse that view to say, well, we just we can keep on sinning because we're going to receive Christ's righteousness. Uh, that's what it means to be justified. Uh, God's grace is going to cover it. On the other hand, if you take Wright's view too far, if you abuse that, that, that justification is about who's in the covenant, and that means we need to be faithful to God to keep covenant with him, well, you can carry that too far and essentially come up with being saved by works. That is, we need to remain faithful so that we can be saved, and it makes us the authors of our own salvation. These terms are important. The way we think about these things are important. But I'm not primarily interested in what these guys have to say, even though I I think studying that can be uh, enlightening. It can help point us in the right direction. What does the Bible say? That's really what we're asking tonight. It's a word study. How do we define justification? And I wish I had, this is when, you know, when I first started here, I never used PowerPoint preaching before. This is where I wish I had those slides because I had these definitions on it and you could read it. But uh, just to give you a couple of examples, I have a book. It's called The Portable Seminary, and it's a great comprehensive resource full of a lot of different essays by a lot of different uh, scholars on important topics. And it covers a, a lot of the sort of things that we've talked about throughout this series. And in the back, it has a glossary where it defines key terms. And this is the definition it gives for justification. Listen to this. The manner in which God considers righteous those sinners who, by faith in Jesus Christ, receive divine forgiveness and reconciliation. Think about that. I'll read it one more time. The manner in which God considers righteous those sinners who, by faith in Jesus Christ, receive divine forgiveness and reconciliation. When you really start to break that down and think about it, that definition doesn't really say much. I mean, there's a whole lot of nothing there. The the manner in which God considers righteous, what is that manner? That's really the question that we're, we're asking, and I feel like that definition is just a, a long-winded way of sort of, uh, it's a tautology, just beating around the bush there. There's a better definition uh, from a, another book. This is a, a big systematic theology by a fellow named Waden Grudem, and here's the definition he gives. <clears throat> Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. That sounds like Piper's view. And two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. Now, this is a better definition. I'm not so sure about point number one, that is, he thinks of our sins as being forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. But it's good in a couple of levels because primarily it points us to the fact that justification is a legal term. That's what helps us to understand this word. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God. This is about a declaration, a verdict that God renders, and that second point is what that verdict is. He declares us to be righteous in his sight. It helps us, I think, to understand 
the whole family of words that's related to justification. You see, in most English Bibles, that noun, justification, only appears three times, and it's in close proximity in Romans. One in Romans chapter 4, two in Romans chapter 5. So Romans chapter 4 and verse number 25, this is all in that context of, of Abraham's faith and how we too come into that relationship with God by the same faith that Abraham had. But he's talking here at the end, he's talking about faith being reckoned as righteousness. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So there's one usage. Jesus was raised for our justification. The other two uses are in the very next chapter, Romans 5, uh, verse number 16 and verse number 18. And I'm actually going to start reading in 15 so you can get this whole context of this paragraph. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. These are the only three uses of justification or translations of justification in nearly every English Bible. But you see, it's all here in the context of Christ's death and our faith in that and the benefit that we obtain from it. We receive justification on account of Christ's death, Paul says. It helps, as I said, if we understand this whole family of words, because even though justification only appears these three times, there are a number of occurrences of the related terms. Justification is related to the word righteousness. We talked about this several months ago uh, when we talked about the word righteousness. But these are the same terms in the Greek. There's a whole family of terms. This word justification is the Greek dikaiosis, which is a noun, and that has the meaning of justification or vindication or acquittal. You can see that's, that's a legal term there. It's a, a verdict that's rendered that you're not guilty, okay? But these other terms and the other parts of speech, this whole family, there's uh, dikaios, so you can see how they sound the same. Uh, that's something that's right in relation to a standard, something that is just, something that's fair. There's dikaiosune, that's the noun that's translated as righteousness or justice or uprightness. There's dikaio, that's a verb that means to vindicate someone by granting them a, a favorable verdict. So, Here's the the point, you know, you don't have to remember all those different Greek terms. Uh, 
The point is that justification is related to righteousness. These are essentially the same words. The noun righteousness, that refers to the status of someone who is right according to God's standard. If you're righteous, you measure up to God's standard. You're in the right. The verb means to be regarded as righteous, to be vindicated. But think about this in English. There's no verb form of righteous. You know, you'd say, uh, I don't know, that God righteoused you. Uh, Obviously, that doesn't make any sense. We wouldn't know what that means. And so that's why most English translations render this as justified. And when we see it in some of these contexts, rather than seeing righteousness, we see justification. Justification is that act of being acquitted, of being vindicated, of being declared right, that you are righteous in God's sight. So what does that mean? How do we unpack that? If you look at the Old Testament background of these words related to righteousness, righteousness derives from a Hebrew term, tzaddik. That involves fulfilling the demands in a relationship, living up to your part of the bargain in a relationship. And the Old Testament, when it uses that term, it usually has God in view there. Uh, That is, we're keeping up our part of the bargain with our relationship with God. Uh, We're living up to his standards, so we're in the right. Righteousness is, is justice in the context of that relationship. When you fulfill your obligations, you're said to be righteous or justified. That's another way to think of it, to relate it to justification. And there are two fields of thought in the Old Testament in particular that help shape this idea, the law court and the covenant. So the law court, the first one, I mentioned already, this is technically a legal term. In the Hebrew legal system, you didn't have any public prosecutor. You didn't have a a district attorney. All cases were, in a sense, civil cases. You'd have one party representing themselves against another party. The judge is the one who's indispensable there, the one who's impartial. The plaintiff is bringing his case before the defendant. Justification or righteousness is the status for either party when the court finds in their favor. So when the judge rules that you're in the right, you're righteous, you're justified, you've received justification from the court. Of course, what's the standard when we're talking about Jewish law? It's God's law. It's the law of Moses. It's the covenant law. And so it came to acquire this sense of behavior that lives up to God's standard. And you can see how it bleeds into that second sense then of being in a covenant relationship. Of course, in addition, the judge has to conform to righteousness, correct? A judge has to be righteous. He has to be just. He has to try cases fairly and impartially. He has to be himself true to the law, true to the covenant. So you see how this bleeds then into that second field. And that's because the law for Jews, is the covenant charter. We have this relationship with God, the Jewish field of thought, 
And God, because of that covenant, has given us this law that we need to keep in response. And in fact, in the Old Testament, you're aware of this. We don't have to cite any scriptures. Go read through the Old Testament and see how often God is pictured as a king or as a judge, someone who's rendering justice. Sometimes in these images, Israel is the plaintiff. They're bringing a case before God. They want him to... Uh, do justice and avenge them on their enemies. Sometimes Israel's the defendant. They violated God's covenant, and so there's a prophet usually who's bringing charges against them. But in either case, God is the judge. But because he's a just judge, because he's perfectly righteous, that's how you know you can get vindication from him. He's going to judge everything properly. He will always keep up his part of the covenant. So God's seen as the source of righteousness because he is just, he's faithful. He always keeps covenant with Israel. And of course, he promised a new covenant, which brings us to the New Testament. Those two settings, the law court and the covenant, form the background to justification in the New Testament. And again, that relational aspect of justification or of righteousness is what's most prominent when we see these terms used. The righteous, the ones who've been justified, are those who belong to God's covenant people. It's not so much a declaration about what you do as who you are. You're in a relationship with God. God's, God's righteousness is demonstrated in Christ. He institutes that new covenant through that righteousness he demonstrates, in, and that's what Paul's really talking about here in a lot of ways in Romans 4 and 5. But there's also that legal background, to go back to that, that we have to keep in mind. Remember, justification, that's a legal term. It means you've been acquitted. You've been declared to be righteous. That's why it's so critical for us to understand this connection between justification and righteousness so that we really understand what this word means. But of course, when we think about this, God's declared us, if we're justified, God's declared us to be righteous. Well, do you consider yourself to be righteous? It's a difficult concept when you start to examine Scripture, and we see, of course, that true perfect righteousness, the righteousness that God possesses, we can't ever obtain that. There's not a righteous person on earth who does good and never sins, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse number 10. Or Paul puts it more succinctly. You know this one, Romans 3.10. There is none righteous, no, not one. So on the one hand, no one is righteous, and yet we're told plainly, we just read it a few moments ago, we receive justification in Christ. That means we're declared to be righteous. Of course, we receive that because Christ has it. He himself was perfectly righteous. He fulfilled all righteousness, as he says, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 15. His actions pleased God. They met a standard. They were righteous. And as Paul says in Romans 4 and 5, we've read some of this, through faith in him, we are declared to be righteous. We receive justification. And that's where this idea of imputed righteousness comes from that we mentioned earlier, this idea that we're not righteous, but because of faith in Jesus, we receive his righteousness. Although I'll mention that 
that term imputation, this idea imputed righteousness. You don't ever find that terminology in Scripture. So I, I'm cautious about that. So we don't have righteousness, yet we're declared to be righteous in Christ, though we can't ever be perfectly righteous, and yet we're told to pursue righteousness. Uh, Paul says that to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, for instance. Jesus himself tells it to us. We all know this passage from the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God and what else? And his righteousness, Jesus said. So we're told to pursue something that we're also told we can't possibly obtain on our own. And that's where all this discussion about how do we get it, about imputation, et cetera, comes in. Uh, You know, the real debate here is, The real debate, and this goes back to the Protestant Reformation, is Christ's righteousness imputed to us? That is, we don't really have it ourselves, but we're clothed in it. His righteousness is counted for us. Or is it infused into us? That is, we really do receive Christ's righteousness within us in some sort of mystical sense, and so that makes us righteous. You know, like a lot of these theological debates that you start reading about, I think this is a little bit of a of a false dichotomy on the one hand, and then on the other hand, it has more to do with, oh, medieval philosophy than it has to do with what the Bible actually says. Here's the way we can sum up what Scripture says. When God justifies us, he really does declare us to be in the right. He really does say, you're not guilty, or maybe better, you're guilty but you've been pardoned. You've been acquitted. A pardoned sinner, you may have been a sinner, but a pardoned sinner really is pardoned. You really are in that right state with God. And then that pardoned person really can and must go on to lead a new kind of life. And debates about how exactly that happens are sort of beside the point. And That covenant background that I spent a lot of time talking about, I think that really helps put us on the right track. I think that's where, to go back to those two views I mentioned at the beginning, that's where I think N.T. Wright is closer to right here. To be righteous is to be declared to be in God's covenant people. You are part of God's people. It means more or less covenant membership. But that carries with it certain ethical considerations, right? If you're part of God's people, you need to live the way God says. If you're in covenant with God, you need to keep his law. And of course, that all draws on that Old Testament background. I mentioned this is a controversial issue, and we probably wouldn't know it because justification is one of those things we don't talk about very much. But I think, like so many of these debates, a lot of the, the writing about this seems to forget that this is really just a metaphor. This is an attempt to explain in human terms what God has done in Christ. And metaphors are by their nature imperfect. They're analogies. They're attempts to explain what, when we're talking about God's work, is inexplicable. And it's all wrapped up with some other terms that we're going to see in the next few weeks when we're talking about salvation. You know, propitiation, atonement, these very serious, weighty words. But But here's the take-home tonight. Justification is God's verdict 
that we're in the right standing with him. That's declared in the fact of the crucified and risen Christ. To go back to one of those mentions of this in Romans chapter 4 and verse 25, that Jesus Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The human condition is essentially defined in one sense by divine condemnation on account of sin. We have sinned. We deserve to be punished by God. But through the death and resurrection of Christ, we can be justified if we accept that justification by faith. We rely on the work of God. We rely on the faithfulness of Christ. And we won't read it for time's sake, but go read Romans 3. You really want to understand this? Read all of Romans uh, because Paul unpacks it here. But we rely on Christ's righteousness, on his finished work. We renounce any claims of self-righteousness. I know that I'm not good enough, and we throw ourselves completely on the mercy of God. If you think about this term justification, even though he doesn't use it in Galatians, Paul's emphasis on the idea of justification, it's primarily in Romans and in Galatians. In both of those letters, he's primarily defending the acceptance of the Gentiles without keeping the law of Moses. And I think that's critical for us to understand this term. You think about Galatians, it's all about these Judaizing teachers. Remember, some had even come up from James and Jerusalem. They'd said that uh, Gentiles ought to keep the law. Peter was even carried away with it. He stopped eating with the Gentiles, even though he had been before. So Paul's whole point is, no, Gentiles don't need to keep the law. And Romans is really just expanding on that. And that helps us to see that the whole point of justification is contrasting here the basis of our acceptance of being in that covenant relationship with God. It's not something that's just about faith for its own sake, the way that some like to talk about here. This is a way of of understanding that the gospel is open for everyone. And the whole point is, remember, justification is about being in God's people. The whole point of this is, how do you know? How do you know that you're part of God's people? For a Jew, you kept the law. You were circumcised. That's how you knew that you were in the right. You were either born into that relationship or else you had to become a Jew. But Paul's point in terms of Jesus is that for us, we know we're in God's people because of Jesus. We know that we've been justified we can count on that covenant membership because we place our faith in him. That's something that's open to everyone. It's a spiritual principle available to all. Not because of any righteousness in ourselves. God doesn't justify us, declare us to be right because we're great, because we're righteous. But he says we're part of his people because of Christ's finished work. And the most wonderful thing about this, I think, this goes back to the text that Tristan read a few minutes ago. What's wonderful about this is that it is instantaneous and it is complete. Do you not know that the unrighteous, see how all these words are related even if we didn't realize that in context? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. They were like that. They were completely unrighteous. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, you were declared to be righteous, you were declared to be part of God's people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's a, the wonderful thing about this word, this concept. We can be completely alienated from God. We can be completely lost in sin, engage in some of these terrible practices. But in Jesus, because of Jesus, because we trust in his completed work, God says, you are in the right. You're part of my people. What a great truth and a great blessing that is. If you're here tonight, though, and you're not continuing to live in righteousness, maintaining your part of that covenant faithfulness with God, then you need to make changes to be back in that right relationship with him. If that's the case with you, if you need to repent in a public way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing. With